All right, good morning. Uh, turning your Bibles to the book of Acts. As Tyler mentioned, we are specifically like spending some time looking at the birth of the church of Ephesus. That's what the chapters 19 and 20 uh, are all about in the book of Acts. So Acts 19, we're in verses 8 to 17 this morning, uh, and our sermon title is called Confronting the Devil. It's going to be a fun one. Um, also, before we get into it, as you're turning there, we wanted to give you a little pulpit update for the month of December. Uh, we just have some exciting stuff planned. wanted you guys to know about that. So for the next two Sundays, we're going to have Dave Lomas with us from Reality San Francisco. He's going to be teaching, and he's been praying, and he has like two specific like special sermons for our church. He's just really been praying for these sermons, so we're really excited to receive that from him. And then we're going to have a few weeks in like an Advent series after that. Um, also, I wanted you guys to save the date for Christmas this year. Um, we're going to have like a special Christmas service December 23rd. Okay, so that's the Sunday before Christmas. So that's when we're really going to be targeting like Christmas. This, I, I again want you guys to just be thinking and praying, who could I invite? You know, we still have some cultural Christianity hanging on where we actually have an opportunity to invite people. Hey, come to church for Christmas. You know, it's going to be like accessible and they're going to, it's like we're going to be thinking about them as we do that service. So be praying about your neighbors, your friends, your family. It's a really good Sunday to invite them to. So we'll have more on that to come, but just wanted you guys to know kind of what's coming for the month of December. Um, All right, so Acts chapter 19, verse 8, uh, we will read it and pray. And then I don't know if there are kids in here, but this is one of those sermons that if you have younger kids, it's at least worth thinking about, maybe not having them in here, um, no problem. But if you you want them in here, it would make for good conversations, but it's definitely a little bit on the scarier side, but it's in the Word of God, so we want to get into that. So Acts chapter 19, verse 8, let's read it and pray. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Greeks and Jews. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the word of God. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you for your living and active word. Thank you, God, that... It is, it is called the sword of the spirit. It is part of our tool in, in fighting against the enemy, Lord. And so we just ask that you would use your word, Holy Spirit, that you would confront what needs to be confronted, correct what needs to be corrected, that the enemy would be driven back in each of our own lives and in our church. And as a result, that our cities and our workplaces would be different 
that the enemy would lose ground because of what you have to say to your church today. So I pray, God, that you would give us just clarity. Um, if, if, we're, if, if we're afraid, would you comfort us with who you are, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that you are with us. And thank you, Lord, as we've already said, that you are victorious. You have defeated Satan and sin and death on the cross. You've risen again. You are seated on your throne. And so as this text says, the name of Jesus was extolled, we just together look to you, Jesus. We want to be more in love with you, more worshiping you. We want you to be larger in our hearts and minds as we leave this place. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we get into this text, I want us to remember like what's been happening. In the previous verses, we see the Ephesian church get like planted, founded. Uh, they hear the word of God, they get their theology corrected, the spirit falls on them, and Jesus because, becomes their first love. And that's what we were learning about. Jesus was like, hey, remember those early days when you were in love with me. Now, in our text, we see what happens when a church hears the word of God and is filled with the spirit. Right? We see some of the results. When we hear the word of God, when we're filled with the spirit, we see what begins to happen as that trickles out to the community. So it begins, Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue as he typically does. He's rejected as is typical. And then he moves to a lecture hall named the Hall of Tyrannus for two years every day. Think about that. Every day, Paul's just proclaiming the word of God. And he's, I mean, he's preaching all day long, every day, So that is, it says in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's crazy. All of the residents of Asia. Now, as the word of God goes out, the power and presence of God goes out. And that's what we're going to be reading about in the next verses. We see what happens when the word of God goes out and the power of God goes out and it begins to affect all of like the community and the people around. And so as verses 11 and 12 says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, so what God's doing here is as Paul's proclaiming the word, God's validating Paul supernaturally. Like people are saying, wow, there's power here. This isn't just a new idea. This isn't just new truth. Like God is in this. And as is, as is expected, when God does something extraordinary, people are attracted, right? And, and as we know about Ephesus, they were a very spiritual community. Uh, we're going to read next or the next time we're in this book about magic and spells. They were into like witchcraft and demons and people, you could pay money to have evil spirits leave like your child or your house. Like they were spiritual people. And so as all this stuff is happening, they're like, whoa, what is this? They're very interested. And, and we learn as a result, we read of these seven Jewish exorcists, which how about that for a job description, right? The Jewish exorcist, and they see what God is doing through Paul. They see like an apron go out and someone get healed, or they, they hear Paul preach Jesus and they see demons run and flee, and they're like, man, I want in. This is our job. Like, we got to figure out what he's doing. We'll make way more money. This, like, this is what we want more of this. And so they go around, they go around demon hunting, find a demon, and they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's like their new strategy. That's like their new spell they, they take, and they start proclaiming that to demon-possessed people. Now, I want us to notice this. These guys are demon hunting, but that is not what Paul was doing. Paul wasn't a demon hunter. He didn't go out looking for demons. This is simply what happens 
When the word of God is proclaimed and the spirit of God is falling, as a result, like demons begin to flee. Paul wasn't demon hunting. This is fruit of a a faithful church and a gospel ministry. But these guys don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with his word. They don't want anything to do with his spirit. They just want the raw spiritual power, right? So they go demon hunting and they find a guy who's possessed by a demon. And imagine that. They're like, yes, here he is, a demon. Okay, here we go. So they, they start talking to the guy. And the demons start talking back. This is real. This happened. You start talking to a guy. Demons start talking back to you. And they say this. We've heard of Paul. And we definitely know who Jesus is. But who are you guys? We've never heard of you. I don't know who you are. And, and what happens as a result is these guys get absolutely worked. They, it, it's been said, if at the end of a fight, you don't have your clothes on, you lost. These guys, this is in the Bible. This detail, I love that Luke included this. He says, they ran for their lives, beaten and naked and utterly ashamed. Like this happened. One man full of demons took on seven guys and they fled naked and ashamed. And everybody heard, of course they heard what happened. And it says, great fear fell on everyone. Like what is happening? But the name of Jesus was extolled. Now, if you've been around church for any bit of time, you've heard, you've already, we've already prayed it multiple times. Jesus has defeated the devil. He's victorious. He's seated on his throne. And you've probably already heard how the story ends. Jesus takes the devil, throws him into the lake of fire forever, never to return. We know that's how the story ends. I mean, that's, that's a good ending to the story. But listen, by, by the, the Spirit and through Luke, they... The Lord wanted us to have this story for a reason, to teach us some important truths and lessons about spiritual warfare. We know the ending. We know Satan is defeated. Yet there is a time until Jesus returns where though our foe is defeated, he is wreaking havoc. And and if you are not prepared like these seven guys, the devil has a lot of potential to like run circles around your life. He, has, he still has some power. And so the Lord wants us to, to be prepared and be ready and aware. And so this morning, this text, this story gives us an opportunity as a church to like refresh our training on spiritual warfare. Uh, this may be really familiar ground for you. This may be completely new for you. But we're going to look at three lessons about spiritual warfare to be refreshed from this text. And the, and the first lesson, the first thing we need to learn about spiritual warfare is this. We must be wise to Satan's schemes. We must be aware of Satan's schemes. Um, In World War II, the Germans Germans were known for like their, they had these codes, like these secret radio codes. And at that time, if you know radio, anyone can listen to a radio, but they would be speaking in code, right? And so people didn't know what they were saying. And they, they took such pride in their codes, like no one will ever be able to figure out what we're saying. Um, but there was this, there's movies and stories about this. There's this estate in England, this big old mansion called Bletchley Park. And inside there was this team of the smartest people that England had to offer. And they were dedicated full time to like breaking these, Germany, these German codes. And in their efforts, they developed the first computer. And one day they finally like break the code. And they realize, okay, these Nazis, they change their codes every day. Yet this computer helped them discern like, Okay, this is how they're making their codes. And it's been said their efforts in breaking the code shortened World War II almost in half, as much by four years that we would know what the Germans were doing. And here's the point. God has given us his word, and in his word, he has exposed 
the enemy's schemes. He has exposed our enemy's schemes. And he, he says this in 2 Corinthians 2. He, he starts by talking about forgiveness. He says, forgive one another. Listen, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Part of following Jesus, walking with Jesus, is to not be unaware of what our enemy is doing. C.S. Lewis talked about spiritual warfare. He wrote a pretty famous book called, uh, what's it called again? Screwtape Letters. And in it, he's, he's talking about, it's, it's the, the main character is like a senior devil talking, training a younger devil. And you get all these insights into warfare. And in it, he says this. This is the senior devil talking. He says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. Oh, I'm sorry. This is in the prelude. So this is C.S. Lewis talking about what the two errors that we often fall into when we think about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Get that? One is to just disbelieve. That's crazy. This is crazy talk. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Okay, so the enemy has schemes. And we each have personalities. Some of us may tend to be like, no, I don't even believe in that stuff. Satan's defeated. I don't need to think about that. Some of us are like, there are demons everywhere, nonstop, everywhere I go. I didn't get that parking spot. The devil is in that, right? Like, what is happening? The devil is after me. So here's, here's the, the summary. Some of us tend to deny they exist. Maybe we wouldn't say that, but we practically deny they exist. This is much more of our Western society's tendency, right? We have like a secular, naturalistic, like science-minded people where, where the past couple hundred years, we, we explain all that there is through the laws of science alone. Like, yeah, this, this, this is, all of religion is just people trying to explain natural phenomena. Now we have science, so we know all these things like spirits and demons, they don't really exist. And so the Bible's, you know, it teaches some nice things, but all that supernatural stuff, like no, that's not really, that's, that's not true. That's not real. And that can seep into some of us. If some of us are more like, you know, intellectual maybe and, and, and are, are, are smart, we can tend to be like, yeah, I just don't know if I believe in this stuff. I don't know if this is real. And this even creeps into historically the church where, where someone talks about the story of Jonah and they're like, listen, a man can't live in a whale for three days. That's impossible. Which is the point. That is impossible, but we believe in God. So they'd say, listen, a man can't rise from the dead and float away into heaven. That science can't explain that. And the answer to that is, you're right. There's more. There's supernatural. The universe is not just what we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands. We believe in God, a supernatural being. And we're not bound up only by what our senses can see. Uh, Peter says this to us. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's saying the devil's real. He's like a lion. He's prowling around. Be be sober-minded about this. If there was a lion wandering around our church, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to be like, I don't believe it. Like, it's going to be too late for you, right? You need to be sober-minded. Wait, there's a lion? Where is, like, I need to be watchful about this. And so, church, I want to remind us, we have a real enemy, and he hates you. He hates you, and he desires to steal from you what matters most, your trust in and love for Jesus. He, He went after our first parents, Adam and Eve, 
He went after Jesus. He went after Paul and David. He went after these seven sons of Sceva church. We need to be sober-minded. There's a real enemy who really hates us and is after us. And so, so one, enemy, one uh, pitfall is don't deny he exists. We need to be sober-minded. But now the other one that I think maybe we are maybe more prone to in this church is to overcredit Satan and demons, right? Like the devil made me do it. And it's important for us to recognize what Satan can and cannot do. Listen, while Satan is our enemy, listen, he's not our only enemy. The Bible actually gives us uh, essentially four enemies that we have. Number one, we do. We have Satan and demons are our enemy. But then also, number two, we have sin. The flesh is also our enemy. Number three, the world is our enemy, which is like the collective. This is what happens when sin seeps into societies and structures and cultures and art. That's the world. And the last enemy is death. As the word says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. These, these are our biblical enemies. And it's important to recognize not everything is a work of our first enemy, Satan, and demons. We can't forget our flesh. We, listen, this is so important. This is sobering, but we will be struggling with the same temptations our entire life until we see Jesus face to face. That is a real thing. We have this flesh and we can't forget about the world that is constantly just placing before you opportunities to sin and telling you it's normal. This is why we, we do not have permission to blame Satan for our sin. We don't have permission to do that. If like we probably all did this last week, if we eat too much, we are not instructed to pray out the demon of gluttony. We're, we don't have that permission. For, honestly, when, when we may be more serious, when, when we lust, our biblical strategy is not to pray away the demon of lust. It's to repent of our lust. All too often, we try to blame our sin on the devil. Do you know who did that? Eve did that. She's like, listen, he made me do it. Or we blame our sin on others or the world, which is what Adam did. He's like, this woman you gave me made me do it. We tend to, to blame it on the devil or the world, but the Bible says, hey, our sin, your sin lies on you and you are called to repent of your sin. Now, it's also important to recognize not everything is our sin. Not everything is the world. Satan really does come prowling around just tempting us in our flesh. He knows what our flesh is tempted towards and nonstop, he's relentless, tempting us to lust, tempting us to indulge in our flesh. Sometimes you really are getting attacked and need to fight back. And you can, the Bible says, find relief from that attack. When Jesus was getting attacked, he said, be gone, Satan. And he listened, he left. When James tells us about this, he says, resist him and he will flee. And so while not everything is Satan, some of it is. And we need to be able to learn what is it? How do we recognize and how do we resist? Now, in this text, we get some insight into the, the more insight into the schemes of the enemy. Um, often when the enemy attacks, it's a progression, okay? It, it may start small, he may get a foothold, and the end of his attack is like outright mastery. In our text, we see like the end result. When Satan has full control of someone's life, when someone is demon-possessed, we see that's like the end game for someone. When you are just in full bodily like control, the enemy has control over your body. That is what we see. And, and this is, the Bible talks about this. It says in 2 Timothy 2.26, 
says, engage with people about Jesus. It says, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Satan has enough power that if someone gives them full control, they will be fully captured doing the will of Satan. That's a thing. That happens. Judas, this happened to Judas. This happens in our society. That's like the end game of just full mastery by Satan. But, you know, to take a step back in progression, what's often before that is more subtle schemes of the enemy. We often tend to think, when we think of the devil, we often think of like the movie The Exorcist or something, you know, supernatural, like, oh, things are like floating around my house. And maybe that's true, but far more likely, especially in our Western culture, are his subtle schemes. He's not just trying to like spook you. He, he actually is way smarter and knows how to go after us in a much more subtle way. Uh, for an unbeliever, it's not always full demon possession. It's enough for Satan if they just don't believe in God. This is like, I, I don't need to do anything else. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, in their case, that's unbelievers, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has enough power to like blind people's eyes so they cannot see the beauty of Jesus. But for a, a believer, for a Christian, what's, what are the schemes of the enemy against believers? What did he do to Jesus? What did he do to Paul? What do we see in the Bible that he does to believers? Number one, we know he tempts us. He, he tempts us. We see that with Adam and Eve. He's tempting us to disobey God. Number two, this is, this is so profound and we don't think of it. He aggravates tensions of just daily relationships. You think of like Cain and Abel, just brothers, rivalry led to murder. That just starts with just aggravating tensions. The Bible talks so much about unity and forgiving one another and not going to bed with like angry, lest the devil have a foothold. He just aggravates our relationships with people. You know another one he does, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this, is disappointment with your church. Satan will just constantly just be nagging you. He, He says, you need to find a more suitable church for you. You know, someone that does, you know, less of this and more of this and more, less, like, that, that is so not what church is and is about. Of course, we don't all have the same preferences. Of course, we're not all the same people. That the beauty of church is that we actually can get together this many people in a room because of Jesus, not because of anything else. But Satan is just constantly saying, hey, go to another church. Hey, go to another church. Hey, go to, and as a they say wolves, when they hunt, their main goal is to break up a pack and isolate an individual. Once you're isolated, it's like the wolves got you, right? And so part of our strategies is forgive one another, accept one another, be gracious for one another. Another one, and this is true, he really does, the enemy really uh, like aggravates fear for many people. For many people, they are genuinely afraid of the devil, of demons, of maybe you're alone, maybe it's night, just the classic, like, I just feel paralyzed by fear. I've, I've experienced this kind of attack before, like paralyzing fear of the enemy. These are some of the strategies. We're going to get into them more, but I want us to notice the progression. So we have outright mastery. We have more subtle schemes, but here's what I really want us to think about. Where all of it begins, where, where it all starts, where the enemy starts with you in your life is this question did God really say? Think about the first time Satan shows up in the Bible, Genesis chapter three, 
where he begins, where he always begins, is with the question, did God really say? And actually, this is so profound. I want us to to read this little story together. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there. We're going to have it on the screen. I'm going to read us these first six verses. This is it, guys. This is the enemy's strategies against your life. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Four four things, you guys. This is Satan's strategy against you every day. Number one, he says, he questions God's word. Did God really say? And it will always be about something that your flesh wants. Man, this looks really good. This looks really attractive. I, I desire this. Whatever your temptation may be, think about this. What's your temptation every day that you face? The enemy is going to do this to you. Did God really say, don't do that? Did he really say? This first step is to question God's word. The second thing he does is he twists God's word. Look at what he says to Eve. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. But is, did God say that? Did God say, okay, guys, listen, you're not allowed to eat from any tree. No, he didn't say that. He said, don't eat from the middle tree. But now Satan is twisting God's word. He often makes it sound like worse and more dramatic. Did God actually like, I want to think of a, a common one. I don't know. These are all kind of controversial. I don't want to be controversial. Let me just say this. We, we often take a temptation and we try to build like maybe even unbiblical fence around it. Like Eve said, Eve added on to God's rule. She, she tells Satan, she's like, no, he says, you, you, can't, you can't even touch it. God didn't say that. And what, what we often do what happens is Satan twists God's word. I'll use this example. This is common in our culture. I'm trying to think on the fly here. Sexual sin, we talked about last week, is a very common temptation for us. And what Satan will do is say, did God really say, don't sleep around, don't look here, don't look there? Then what he'll do is he'll twist God's word and say, do you know what? Did God really say you can't even do this at all? And that's not what God says. Satan takes a good gift of God and he twists it and he makes it feel like, man, God's holding out on me, which is not what God actually says. Satan twists the word of God. Number three, what he then does is he outright denies God's word. He's kind of getting, he's getting in, in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? Did God really say I can't eat from any tree? And then he just outright says, God didn't say you will surely die. That's not true. God's lying to you. The road leads to outright denial of God's word. And then number four, where that leads is to cast doubt upon God's character. He knows that if you do this, like it's gonna be really good for you. And what God's really trying to do is hold out on you. God's trying to hold out on you. So he starts by questioning God's word, twisting God's word, denying God's word, and casting doubt upon God's character. Now think about where am I tempted? And and how... Has, has any of this snuck in? 
When, when you're tempted, are you tempted to, to think, man, God's like holding out on me? Why is God holding? Why is God trying to rob me of joy? And is, is that what God is into? He's trying to save our lives and, and, and allow us to enjoy him in life forever as he made it. Where am I tempted to just deny God's word? Where am I flirting with shows or podcasts that kind of just feed into that? Did God really say that? God didn't really say that. If you really understood the context, listen, he's saying this. Where are you denying? Where are you twisting? These are the daily schemes of our enemy. And God says, don't be unaware of his schemes. Do not be unaware of his schemes. And so that's the first thing we see from this text. We, ne- we can't be unaware. The second thing we see is this. I love this. Satan is no match for Jesus. We see that in our text. It says God was doing extraordinary miracles. The evil spirits just came out of them. It wasn't even like a battle. They were just leaving. God, there's no match. 1 John 3, 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in this story, we see the works of the devil just being pushed back and destroyed by Jesus. And here's a couple things. This is, it shouldn't be controversial, but it is, this is true, you guys. Jesus is sovereign over Satan. We don't believe in dualism where there's good and evil duking it out. That's not what we believe. That's not the the story of the Bible. There's God and there's no struggle between him and evil. He defeated Satan in a moment, and he's allowing him to be here for a time, and then he will, in a moment, throw him into the lake of fire. We don't believe God's stressed out over Satan right now. We don't believe God's like, oh man, he got me there, like point for Satan. That's not how it works. But, but sometimes we think, is God really sovereign over Satan? Does God really have control over evil and what's going on? You guys, I This is so important to know. God is sovereign, seated on his throne. And whatever Satan has done or will do is under the permission of God. And what we know about God is as Satan is trying to just wreak havoc, God is secretly like, watch what I'm gonna do with these schemes of the enemy to work out for my glory. And I want you to see this in a couple stories. Number one, uh, do you remember the story of Job? where Satan goes to God and he's like, he's, he's like, hey, yeah, I know Job loves you, but if you really let me like ruin his life, he won't love you. And I want us to see this, these, these verses. This is important in our theology of the devil. Job uh, chapter one, verse seven to 12 says this. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not, only against him, meaning his, his life, do not stretch out your hand. I want us to say that, see this. Number one, Satan doesn't know the future. He doesn't, he's not sovereign. He's like, listen, Job's gonna curse you to his face. God's like, it's not how the story ends. Number two, Satan has to get permission from God before he does anything. This is in the Bible. God's like, do you know what? Okay, here's, here's permission. Go ahead. And all that Satan always does is under the sovereign watch of God. And the other thing along those lines is Satan is always on a leash. He's always on a leash. God limits him. This is what you can do. This is what you cannot do. Satan right now is on a leash and Jesus is holding it, saying you can do a few things 
And that may be confusing to us. Why, Jesus, are you letting him? We don't know all things, but Jesus is good. He is sovereign, seated on his throne, and he's holding Satan on a leash. We see this also in the life of Jesus. In every interaction between Jesus and a demon, there's no contest. There's not even a struggle. Look at this verse, Mark 3, 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That's how demons react when Jesus shows up. They're not like, oh, watch this, Jesus. They're like falling on their faces afraid. Jesus simply speaks a word and demons have to listen. What's the point? Jesus is sovereign over demons. He is sovereign. They can't resist him saying, I'm not gonna leave, Jesus. I don't care what you say. They have to listen. Notice this, on the cross, it says this in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Though Satan is around, we, as we've already said, he's defeated, he's been disarmed. And I, I, I want, this is such, the cross is such a helpful picture of how Satan works in the world. He's, he's a free evil creature, and he has his evil plans, and he has his schemes, and he possesses Judas, and he makes this whole, he orchestrates this whole murder to happen. And as Satan has his biggest heyday, his biggest victory, I just got Jesus, the son of God, on a cross, and I killed him. What's happening? What's actually happening? God is working all things for good. And that's a picture. Satan's worst attempts are the greatest victories of God. Satan never successfully like steals from God, robs from God, takes something away. Every time he's doing that, God is like, watch what I'm gonna do with that. Watch what I'm gonna do with that. Oh, you wanna kill my son? How about I'll just forgive the whole world and defeat you? That is how God and Satan work. And Satan's like, why is he doing this? I thought I had him. I killed his son. And God's like, Jesus is like, yeah, we know what we're doing. That is always how it works. Satan is always on a leash. He's always under the sovereign control of God. He never has permission to do something to you, to take from you what God hasn't allowed him to. Why, why God would you allow him? We don't always know, but we do see that God uses the evil, wicked schemes of Satan for his sovereign purposes. One more example of this. If you're like, yeah, that was Jesus, but like regular people. Do you remember the story of Joseph when he was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers? And they're like, yeah, we got him. God, or Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, you intended, you had evil intentions in your heart. God intended for good. And he saved a whole nation. You guys, it is always like that. What Satan intends for evil in your life, I hope you hear this for you. What Satan intends for evil in your life, God is always working all things for your good, including the schemes of Satan. He is, God is sovereign over our enemy. I love in the resurrection, it says, through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then the, the last time we see, just start to finish in the Bible, we see the lake of fire. Look at the end. This is coming for Satan. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. From beginning to end, Jesus is sovereign over the devil. He's always using the schemes of the devil for his good purposes. We cannot forget our Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords, always sovereign over the works of the enemy. Amen. That's, that's good, good news. The, the third thing we have to see the third thing we have to see is this. This is, this is where it comes home for us now. 
We see number one, I forget my first point, but it was something. What was the first point? Yeah, yeah, we must be wise to Satan's schemes. Number two, Satan is no match for Jesus. And number three, this is important. Secondhand faith is no match for Satan. Do you hear that? While Satan must submit to Jesus, if we don't have an actual vibrant walk with Jesus, we are no match for Satan. This is the heart of this story. These guys didn't know Jesus. They, they were proclaiming the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Like, I don't know Jesus, but it seems like maybe this is working. Maybe, maybe if I say the name of Jesus, I'll have some, some power and authority. These men were not saved. They were not born again. They just wanted something from Jesus. They just wanted to add Jesus on to their daily life. They don't want to surrender to Jesus. They don't want to walk with Jesus. They don't want to hear his word. They just wanted to use Jesus for their own ends. And if they were really interested in Jesus, they wouldn't try to just use him, but they would be surrendered to him. Now, this brings it home because secondhand faith is all too common and it's such a strong temptation for us Christians. Just repeat the right phrases, right? Just do the right things. Just go through the motions. Raise your hands and worship and take communion and say the right things. And, and maybe, you know, like I'll be victorious over Satan. That's not how it works. We need an actual intimate walk with Jesus. We need real love and a connection, a union with Jesus who is the sovereign over the enemy. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, listen, Satan is stronger than people are. He's just not stronger than Jesus. And so what we need to do is be connected to Jesus. Look at this verse, 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our hope is that the spirit of the living God and our love and union with Jesus, that is our hope. Not like, oh yeah, I'm spiritually strong man or woman. Paul says, take heed lest you fall. If you think you're something, take heed. Spiritual pride is what led these men to just be worked by Satan. And so along these lines, on like a really practical level, um, I want to address some common questions that come up uh, with Christians and spiritual warfare. And the first one is this, in, in, in this text, do Christians, this is important, do Christians have authority over all demons and Satan? Do Christians have authority? And I want to be biblical. Yes and no, okay? I want to be biblical. The, the yes answer is this. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this. Look at these words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given, who? To me. This is important. This is really important. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so this is really important to recognize. As sons and daughters of the King of Kings, you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and are now in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. And as you are connected with Jesus, his authority is over your life. You're not, you're not in this dark kingdom anymore. You're not subject to these rulers. You are, you are under the authority and rule and reign of Jesus. Therefore, you can claim that authority over your life. Over every attack the enemy has against you, you can say, no, by the power and authority of Jesus, who's my king, you have to, you have to leave me. 
You have to leave me. But now listen, we don't have the same authority as Jesus. We aren't seated on the throne. We are not king of kings, lord of lords. We are simply attached to him. And this is important because this, to be biblical, we need to recognize God has given Satan some authority for a time. We need to recognize what is that authority. There's, there's verses here. This is important stuff. First John five nineteen says this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has some power right now over the world. He, as we read this verse earlier, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. There's some more authority Satan actually has right now over unbelievers. Look at this in Acts 26, verse 18. Paul, God's telling Paul, go preach the gospel. He says, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then John 12, 31. Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So listen, we are under and protected and attached to the, the authority of Jesus. But right now, for a time until he's in the lake of fire, Satan actually has some authority. There's, there is a battle happening. There is, there is a real enemy out there who has some authority. And so while we are attached to Jesus, have authority over our life, this is why we don't say go to our local, whatever, tarot reader, whatever, you know, spiritually dark place and just start casting out demons. Because listen, what's our best strategy when it comes to the, the, the authority of Satan over the world and over the lost? It's we do what Paul did. We preach the gospel. We use the word of God and the spirit of God. And we watch as Jesus extends his kingdom and says, I'm now plucking this person out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of of the beloved son. And now they're mine and my authority extends over them. Satan has to leave. It would be foolish while maybe effective to go around casting out demons and not saving these people, not bringing them to a relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, if you do that, the demon may leave, but then seven more are going to come back because Jesus hasn't taken over residence authority in that person's life. And so what's our strategy in warfare for other people? It's to proclaim the gospel that Jesus loves them and died for them. And if they repent, they can have a relationship with him and the enemy will have to leave. So we need a balance. Yes, we have the authority Jesus has given us, but Satan has some authority. And the way to fight that is through the gospel, is to do what Paul did, to pray and preach and watch Jesus save them. Number two, here's a question. When we fight the enemy, do specific words we pray matter? Are these direct strategies we should study? And I want to be balanced here, but listen, what got the sons of Sceva into trouble is they viewed spiritual warfare like magic. They viewed spiritual warfare like a formula, right? Like, okay, by the, the, I got to say these words and say this and say this. And I want to say the, the principle in, in spiritual warfare is the truth that we have a good heavenly father who loves us and knows what we need. And to a- simply ask him, right? We're not into magic. We're not into formulas. We, we're not into memorize these words. We're into be, walking with Jesus and just ask your father for something. Look what Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent, right? Like God's heart is not, man, I forgot the prayer and so I get a demon now. 
That's not God's heart. You have a good father who wants to deliver you from evil, who wants to, it's, the Bible says it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so far more important, hear me, far more important than obsessing over the right words is that you bring your requests to God. Far more important in how you ask is that you ask. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. It doesn't say you have not because you, you said the wrong words. And I want us to, to notice this. We should engage with spiritual warfare, but, but it's always a result, a fruit of our walk with Jesus. It's always, that's the main thing. Are you walking with Jesus? Are you asking, God, please deliver me. Please deliver my family. Please deliver this person from the enemy. Not, I gotta study the exact words. That's why we don't have a handkerchief ministry. That's why I don't have an apron ministry. It's not magic. It's our walk with our Father who loves us. Simply ask him. Number three, can Christians be possessed, right? This is just a classic question. Um, Jesus refers to our body and soul as a house, right? We're, we're like a house. And when we are saved, the enemy who once had control gets kicked out of our house. And Jesus is a stronger man who takes up residence in our house. That's what happens in salvation. That's a metaphor for salvation. So no, a Christian can't, Jesus doesn't leave, right? It was not what we believe. And Satan comes back. But while we cannot be possessed, while Satan can't kick Jesus out of the house and retake up the residence, we can open doors for the work of the enemy, right? Imagine if you were leaving out of town for Thanksgiving, would you just leave all your doors unlocked and open and all your windows open and say, all right, God, please take care of this. That's not what you would do. That would be foolish. When we live in persistent sin, while Jesus is king over our house, we're opening up windows and doors and saying, come on, enemy, you, like, you can have something here. You can have some room. You may not be able to have the house, but maybe you can come and rob and steal whatever you want. When Christians open up the doors, the windows, through unrepentant sin, we are giving the enemy room to, to work in our life. I love, uh, Todd said this this morning when we we're praying about the sermon. In James 4, where it says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Do you know what it says right before that? I didn't know this. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you're getting worked by the enemy, if you're just getting constantly just, man, why does he have all these footholds and these strongholds? Maybe you need to submit yourself to God first. Don't be surprised when he doesn't answer your prayers to deliver you from bad dreams if you're living in sin. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that you're constantly just affected by the devil, but you're not willing to relinquish your sin in your life. We need to submit ourselves. We need to obey Jesus, and the devil will flee from us. Another question, this is common. This, if you're, this is my question, always with the Lord. God, why did you create Satan? Like, if you're sovereign, if you're in control, if you're over all of this, why is this even happening? Why is there a battle? Why did you let Satan in the garden? Why, did you let, why do you let him have some authority in our cities and in our lives? You knew they would rebel. You knew what they would be doing. Why didn't you just stop Satan from the beginning? And while some have explicitly answered that question, I think the answer to that question is this. We don't know, but we know. We, here's what we do know. God is good. And God knew the future, and he still allowed things to be the way that they are. And we know God works all things, all things, according to the purpose of his will. We know that. We know that he will remove Satan and evil entirely one day. And sometimes the why questions aren't always explicitly given to us. Why, God, did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? 
but we do know he is good and he is God and he will work things out for, for good. That's how the book of Job ends. Job is just wrestling, why God, why God, why God? And God simply shows up and just shows a bit of his glory. And Job's like, that's enough. I trust you. I trust you. And so I want to end with a couple of practical, practical biblical strategies in our uh, efforts to fight the enemy. Um, Because, listen, we're not ignorant to his strategies. Because he's defeated, because we belong to Jesus, here's how we are to engage the the, the work and the power of the enemy. I I love this. There's, There's a couple times in the Bible where God could certainly obliterate Satan, but did you know one of the ways he chooses to do that is through you? Did you know one of the ways God pushes out the enemy is through his sons and daughters? Did you know that? He could certainly just do away with Satan, but he chooses to let us participate in the driving out of darkness. Look at this verse in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. He, he could use his own feet. He could snap his fingers to him like a fire right now, but he chooses to use your feet, your feet to crush Satan. And then he says, so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We see this again in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, that's us, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. We get to participate by the blood of Jesus and our testimonies of what Jesus has done. That's how the Lord conquers Satan. And so the Bible says, listen, I've given you weapons. This is important. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so probably the, and I want to make this quick, but this is important, you guys. The strategies we've been given are summed up as Paul wrote a letter to this church in Ephesus. Ephesus chapter six, he knew the devil was there. He knew the enemy was working. And so he says, listen, God, he says this, Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he lists the armor of God, which I want us to hear and be reminded. But listen, the first thing he says, be strong in the Lord. Our hope is the Lord, not ourself. He says, put on. Listen, spiritual warfare is active. You're not just gonna like do spiritual warfare just cruising. Like every day, are you engaged? Are you putting on the armor of God? He starts with the helmet of salvation. If you don't have salvation, you don't have anything else. Like if, if there's someone in here, if you are in here getting just beaten up by the enemy, have you been born again? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you repented of your sin, received the blood of Jesus and been saved? Because if you haven't, spiritual warfare is gonna be brutal. It's gonna be like the sons of Sceva. That's what it's like until you come to Jesus. But when you are saved, you have this helmet of salvation. You are safe. 
Number two, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The enemy, as that verse says, he is the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ, the sons and daughters of Christ. What Satan's doing to you all day long, what he's going to do to you in worship is just accuse you of your sin, accuse you that you do not measure up, that you're not enough. Remember that sin, remember that sin. What we do in that moment is put on the breastplate of righteousness. My righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, I have sinned. It's been nailed to the cross. Now Jesus' righteousness is on me. I am no longer condemned. Put that on. It says put on the belt of truth, the truth of who God is. He's sovereign, he's in control, he's stronger than the enemy and who we are in him. Put, put, put around the truth of the cross. The, the devil's been defeated. I, I love this. We have a little pastor study here and we have like one of those sticker, bumper sticker things. Travin, what does it say? It says, um, whenever the enemy reminds you of your past, remind him of, your, of his future. I love that. That's the belt of truth. Satan, you're messing with me? I, remember, you are defeated and you will be thrown in the lake of fire. That's truth that we can use. Just put on the shoes of peace. Man, the enemy goes after anxiety and fear and worry and, and even just the, being scared of the devil. The shoes of peace reminds us, no, I'm at peace with God. I can have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And then their shoes, because we're called to bring that peace to other people. This is such a helpful tool in evangelism. Hey, are you getting just messed up by the enemy? Are you miserable and fearful and anxious? Let me tell you about peace that comes from Jesus. He says, put on the, hold the shield of faith, which, with, which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. How much faith do you have? The more faith you have, the more effective you are when Satan's lying to you. God doesn't really love you. Did God really say? He's holding out on you. You're like, no, I believe what God has said. I believe he's better. I believe sin is actually miserable. I'm extinguishing these darts. And then he ends that passage by saying, praying at all times in the spirit. Man, if you are depressed, if you are anxious, if you are struggling, like in second set, pray. Come to the prayer team on the right and left and get prayer. Give that to the Lord. And then the, the last thing I'm gonna say is this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Just walk with Jesus. Just cling to your shepherd. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear evil because our shepherd is with us. Man, when you're having a really good spiritual day and you're just demons leaving left and right and everyone's getting saved, do you know what Jesus says? He says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying, remember your first love. Walk with Jesus, cling to Jesus, stick with Jesus. He's the one with power. He's the one with authority. He's the one who the enemy is afraid of. If you can't remember all of this stuff, just walk with Jesus. He's got this. He's a good shepherd. He's king. He's Lord of lords. If, if you have guilt this morning, come take communion and remember what Jesus has done for you. If you have sin in your life, confess it. Confess it. Close those windows and those doors to the enemy. Get that in the light. Get it out of the darkness. Get prayer. And then, and then let's together, I love maybe the last thing of spiritual warfare is worship. I love the Old Testament. What's, what, who led out the, the, the battles? It was the singers and the musicians. That is such an effective act against the enemy in our life. I'm gonna just sing these promises of who God is. The, the, the enemies hate that. The devil hates that. I'm sorry, I'm, I have one more story. I used to, so we do college ministry here on Friday nights and you know, it, people are hanging out forever and then I'm cleaning up and normally um, I'm here by myself and it's like, 
midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, and you know, just a big place by yourself at night, and then you've been like, you know, pouring out, I would just get so afraid. And I'm like, I'm being so dumb. I'm such an idiot. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I just would like this crazy, it wasn't rational. I was just deeply afraid. And I, I, I had like more work to do, or I had to like get a few things, and I was just like paralyzed. Like it was so much to just close the windows and like close the lights and just run out. And I would like run to my car. And one day I was just like sitting here afraid at night. And the Lord, I really believe he was like, hey, just like start singing, like sing. And, you know, you feel dumb like a little kid, like this, that's not going to work, God. Like I'm afraid. And I just started worshiping like out loud. And, you know, like when you sing by yourself in a big open room, you just sound silly. It's just like this. And I was like, this is so dumb. And literally, I just want to testify. As I sing, like supernatural courage filled me up to the point where like, I like felt not afraid. And then I even was kind of like, I was like the disciples, like, yeah, like they're afraid of me. Like they're, they're, I got all this power. The Lord's like, no, just don't be weird, but just sing. Anytime, anytime you're afraid, you're attacked, you're oppressed, sing to me, declare who I am, make music unto the Lord. And that's as every time we gather, we are engaged in pushing back the enemy in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our community. So let's go for it, church. Like, let's engage. Let's, let's put on the armor of God. Let's be encouraged, and then let's worship our King of Kings. Amen? Amen. Jesus, you are King. Yes, Lord. You are King of Kings. You are sovereign and in control. You are seated on your throne. You are victorious over the enemy. We thank you for the cross, Lord, where you disarmed the power of the enemy and death and sin. We thank you for your word that says, man, the day's coming when all of this struggle and battle and warfare will be done once and for all. But I thank you, Lord, that until that day comes, you are with us. You are our good shepherd. Thank you for your rod and your staff that comforts us, that protects us and fights for us. Thank you for your blood, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray full of faith right now that you would do battle over your church. I know that there is unconfessed sin and we've wandered and there's doubt and the enemy just has some footholds. Maybe it's anger and bitterness. Lord, you know. And I ask that you would fight for your people right now. You would, you would come after wandering sheep. That you would, in love, confront whatever is in us that that's, doesn't belong whatever root of bitterness, whatever sin, Lord, please confront that. Thank you that you love us enough to come after us and that you also love us and you walk with us. We don't have to be afraid. We have a good shepherd. Lord, would you lead your people to worship you, to worship you full of faith and trust and thank you that the enemy has to flee. And Lord, whenever we're afraid, whenever we are facing that attack, would we, would you bring these truths to mind, Lord. And I, I do ask that we would grow as warriors, as sons and daughters, that we would, we would grow. The enemy would lose his grip more and more in our lives and then through us, like Paul, Lord, we want to be effective for you. We want to be effective. We don't want to obsess over demons. We don't want to go chase them. We want to walk with you, but we want to be effective. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done in, in our lives and in this city as it is in heaven. So we fix our eyes on you now, Jesus.